We're good. Awesome. Ah, how's everyone doing this morning? Good. See some smiles under the masks? <laughs> I think they're smiles. Could be friends. Can't really tell. Uh, so, I mean, you, you, okay, I will start this way. So you got the email. If you didn't get the email, we have a house. So that's kind of exciting. So we've got a couple of things we want to do to it, but we are big fans of hosting people in our home. Uh, so just be praying, because as soon as things are all set up, you guys get free dinner. So, uh, so bring it, bring it, bring it. Um, thanks for your grace last week. We were trying to figure out what to do with the snow. Um, well, snow for you, Wilsonville was like crazy ice. We lost like four-fifths of the city lost power. Like, if you're on my Facebook, you saw the video, I went out. So, okay. I have never seen this frozen rain thing, so this is like really new for me. And so I opened the door and I looked outside and I was like, what is this? So I was like, give me a second, Monica. And I, like in my pajamas, I ran outside and then I was like a kid on Christmas. I was like, oh my goodness, look at that bush. Oh my goodness, look at that leaf. And so I did that for about five minutes before I was like, I need my camera. So I went running in the house, I got my camera and I look at Monica, I'll be, I'll be back in two minutes. 20 minutes later, I was running around taking pictures of everything. But the best part was like, there's all these trees by your house. And as I went out and I was taking pictures, I heard this like creaking noise that I'd recognized from earlier in the day as branches breaking off. And so I look around and I see this branch starting to like, and there's a car underneath it. And I'm like, I start, I, I start walking towards it. And I'm like, what did I do? Do I try and help it? Do I not? I was like, what can I do with a giant bow covered in ice about to fall on a car? I'm not Superman. So I did the only thing you can do. I switched to video mode. <laughs> and I'm watching, and seriously, I'm watching this branch as it's bending and, and things are falling off it. And the branch touches the front of the car and it stops because that was enough to stop it. And as I'm like, oh, behind it, another branch goes on the car behind it. And I was like, legit. So, um, so that was really, really fun. That has absolutely nothing to do with the sermon. I just, it was fun. So thanks for, thanks for putting up with us not meeting last week. Um, but we get to take what we're going to talk about last week and talk about it this week. Um, so let's, let's go back to, to just core vision. Why are we doing this? We're in a series looking at Acts. Why? Because we want to revisit the early church and say, what can we learn from the early church about who the church is supposed to be? So in this season of revisioning and this new season of life of the church, we're trying to say, what was the vision that the early church lived under and how do we recover some of that? Because as we're seeing already, we've lost a lot of the vision behind who the church was supposed to be. And so there's a lot of work we have to do to get back to, to what the church is supposed to look like. So this morning, we're looking at the end of Acts chapter 4 and into chapter 5. So this is Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Um, but we had a week off, so let me just remind us very, very briefly what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Um, so the series so far... Uh, Jesus has died. He's raised from the dead. His whole life was, was written about in Luke's gospel. Acts, Luke is writing the follow-up. So what happens after Jesus ascends? So the book starts. Jesus is here. He's raised from the dead. He's appearing to the disciples for 40 days, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then he raises to the right hand of the Father. And as he'd promised all along, he pours out the Spirit. So Acts chapter 2, the Spirit falls. People are speaking. Everyone's hearing them in other languages. Miracles start happening. The church is transformed. 
When it goes on into Acts chapter 3, we have this amazing healing story um, where Peter and John are into the temple. They see a man that's paralyzed. Silver and gold I don't have, but what I have, I give you. Get up and walk. And as a result of this amazing move of God, as they respond to what the Spirit is doing and offer the hope that God offers, we go into the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4 with this beginning of the persecution of the church in response to this act of kindness that, that they conduct. So what we looked at a couple of weeks ago was the, the persecution that the original church starts to face. Um, and so we finished by looking at the, the, the message that Peter gave as he's declaring these amazing truths of God to, to the people that are, that are holding them to account. And, and then we pick up here. So that's just happened. And then we reach Acts chapter 4, verse 32. So remember, they, they're being persecuted and they're praying for boldness. They're not praying for comfort. They're praying for boldness. So persecution is underway. And then we pick up the story in, in chapter 4, verse 32. I'm going to do my best not to give commentary all the way through, but I can't help myself. <laughs> so starting at verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. I said I wouldn't give commentary. I'm just, I can't hold my tongue. We're worried about persecution. If this is the result of persecution, I want it. <laughs> This is the response to, to the persecution they're facing. All believers, one in heart and mind. It goes on in verse, uh, continuing in verse 34. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. They brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest of it and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Oops. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. 
As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits. And all of his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out and then commissioned them. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. So at daybreak, it's first thing in the morning, first opportunity they get, they enter the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there, so they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, who you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, whose name will come up later, he was Paul's teacher, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if the, their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Wow. <laughs> I'm hoping these stories are firing you up. Um, get to the end of that. Could you imagine if our church looked like that? 
day after day, out in the public space and from house to house, we never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus the Messiah. What would happen? Um, anyway, I said I wouldn't commentate. Okay, what I want to do, we're going to look through... I, I don't want to work all the way through the passage again because it's such a big sweep of scriptures. What I want to do, this passage is laden, packed full of contrasts. I want to look at four contrasts that Luke sets up in this passage that I think frame uh, the the message and and offer like a a real challenge to us again as the church. So so let's look at these contrasts. The first first overarching contrast um, that we see in here is is big picture. It's persecution versus corruption. So Luke is setting up in this narrative a contrast between the external attack that is coming against the church in the form of persecution and the internal attack that is coming against the church in the form of corruption. And so let's, let's look at just the pattern, a little breakdown here of, uh, of the passage that we're, we're looking at in 4 and 5 and just see kind of this pattern laid out. I think this is always helpful. So in chapter 4 that we looked at two weeks ago, it was the story of the persecution that they experienced as a result of, um, of the healing work that they did. So this external persecution happens. The story moves on into the statement uh, that, that we read at the beginning, 432 to 37. As a result of the persecution, the church blossomed. In the middle of that, they lived in union. They shared their resources. They had fellowship with one another. They devoted themselves to, to teaching, to prayer, and then they went out boldly with the gospel. 5, 1 through 11, you've got this story in the middle of the corruption of Ananias and Sapphira in the church. So this internal move of Satan against the church trying to destroy it. And then he goes back into this description that's dealt with. There's a description of the church and how it grows and blossoms as a result of that story. And then back in to the story of the persecution of the church. And so, so you see this pattern. It's, it's persecution and persecution. The church blossoms. The church blossoms in the middle. The, this corruption. And so Luke is, is setting up this contrast to show us some things. First of all, it doesn't matter if the persecution, if, if the attacks the enemy gives, it doesn't matter if they come from outside or inside, God can use them to cause the church to grow. We know that. <laughs> External persecution God can use. Internal corruption God can use. Um, But here's the difficulty that we see as we look at this passage, because what happens is we see the external persecution, we see the church grow. We see the internal persecution, and then it says all of the people were afraid of them and, and reluctant to join them. Nevertheless, many people joined their numbers. So here's the thing that I want us to have squarely in mind as, as we're walking forward as a church. Persecution grows the church, but our internal corruption kills the church. So we tend to, in the West, get very big and very loud about the things out there that are a threat to the church. The biblical narrative shows us that the things out there actually perform a refining function in the church. It's the things in here that we need to be more guarded of. But it's a lot easier to ignore our own sin and focus on the issues out there than it is to ignore the issues out there and focus on the issues that exist in here. Um, So in this story, he sets up this contrast, the external persecution that grows the church. We don't want to invite external persecution, 
But when I go to countries where people are persecuted and I look at the fire in the church, it's a marked difference to the comfort of the West and the internal corruption of the church that we allow to exist that leads to a half-hearted effort to pursue Jesus in the Western world. So this huge contrast is set up. External and internal attack is against the church. When it's external, God uses it powerfully to grow them. But when it's internal, uh, it is very destructive to who we are. And, you know, for the last couple of years, you've been walking through, you walked through the process with Vital Church. Vital Church, for those who haven't been around for very long, Vital Church is a group that came in for two years to kind of help the church look back at, at where, where they've come from, look at where they were at in the season that they were here, and look ahead to, to who they want to be as a church. And a lot of the work that Vital Church do is exposing the internal brokenness of the church. The, the lack of conflict resolution, um, the, the comfort, the inward focus, the failure to lift their eyes out into the world. And so they spent time exposing that stuff because what was the problem in here? Wasn't the outside persecution that was causing the church to, to fall short of the mission that God had. It's the stuff that we bring to the table inside the church that does the damage. Um, so what's our job as the church? Is it to be really vocal about all the things out there that are really horrible and destroying our freedoms as Christians? Or is it to be focused on the ways inside that we take our own freedoms and put them ahead of Jesus uh, and then end up with a distorted version of Christianity that we're living? Here's, here's one of the things that's interesting in the land of the free. This is the land of the free. It's exciting to be part of it. There are lots of places in the world that don't have freedom. The Christian journey is not a story of freedom. It's a story of slavery to Jesus. The Christian story is one of giving up your freedoms and being bound to the Savior who called you. In that process, He liberates us from our sin. He liberates us from our bondage. But the Christian journey is not about, I should have all these freedoms, let me walk in them. The Christian journey is, if you're a strong brother and you have freedom in this area, but a weak brother in the church would be led astray because of it, you sacrifice your freedom to love the brother that's next to you. Um, Christianity is about the giving up of our freedoms to experience the greater freedom that comes from intimacy with Jesus. Um, the issues that we bring into the church that are most destructive are when we bring what we claim as our freedom and we impose it on the people next to us. My freedom to look at pornography in private because that doesn't affect everybody here. My freedom to not have to address that, um, that conflict that's right here because I don't want to work on that. My freedom to be able to run this ministry the way I want it without you guys interfering with it. Uh, my freedom to be able to use the money that we have here the way that I want to use it. And, and what we bring is we bring our freedoms that we claim and we, we declare that we should have the right to do them here when actually we're a covenant community. So just like when you get married and you make a covenant and you say in this covenant, I am covenanting to give up my freedoms and, and bind myself to Monica and make her desires my desires and to work together. And in the church, that's what we're doing. We're a covenant community that come together and say, as a part of this group, I, my money's not my own, it's God's, and now it's used here. My gifts are not my own, they're now used here. My time is not my own, it's now God's and used here. And so it's about giving up freedom 
Um, but the corruption that we experience is all the ways we take the freedoms that we desire and we bring them to the people here and we don't give ourselves to Jesus the way he wants. That will do more damage to the church than anything the world can throw at us. So that's number one, overarching contrast, the external versus the internal. Number two, the contrast they set up here is between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. So, so here's, here's one of those little side notes. You know, I think it's easy to forget the chapter and verse numbers are not the Bible. <laughs> they are tools that were added later to be able to reference parts of the manuscript so that people had a common language because, the, like, if I pick up my Bible and I tell you Psalm 27 is on page 461, it's probably not in the same place in your Bible. And so they set up a system to help with this. Um, but what has happened is the chapters and the verses are often breaking stories up at awkward points. So some people, if you're going to preach through Acts, you preach chapter 4, and then you start chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. But the verses before it are setting up what is happening in the Ananias and Sapphira narrative. So the story of Barnabas has two functions. They're setting a contrast between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira so that we can see two different ways of existing inside the church. But Luke's also very clever because we know that Barnabas is going to be a key person in the story. And Luke is already introducing the character of Barnabas, who's the guy that's going to advocate for Saul in just a few chapters. And so he's setting up. So let's, let's look at, at what happened in here, this part of the story. Um, looking at 434. You know, they're, they're gathered together. Their heart has been changed. They're not seeing their resources as their own anymore. Um, but they see everything they have as belonging to God and, and useful for him. So it says from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. Now notice, it doesn't say every person sold every possession they had and gave it all away and won't owned anything. It also doesn't say everyone in the church has to sell all this stuff, put it in a common purse, and Scotty's now in charge of it all. <laughs> <laughs> From time to time, as they were moved by the Spirit, is implied. Those who owned the land for houses sold them. They brought the money from the sales and they put it at the apostles' feet which is a symbol of this money. I'm going to give it to you and trust you to steward this money in the way that's needed within our community. Uh, these are people that were specifically called, specifically gifted, and have the time to be able to invest into that work. Um, so then they give an example of someone that does it. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles named Barnabas. The apostles give this guy a name which means son of encouragement. So in this moment, as a result of who Barnabas is, how he's been living, how he's been following Jesus, and in this gesture that he's doing, the apostles have seen something in him so unique that they want to call out, that they give him a name to mark that identity. It's one of my favorite things they do in India. Have I told you these stories? Oh, dang. I'll save some of these for another time. One of my first trips, uh, my second trip to India, my first trip when I was out with Rufus. So we're driving down the road to this little village, and he's like, we're going to go to this um, church dedication. And so I'm like, oh, this will be fun to see. We'll see a church dedication. So we're driving down the road. We get there. We arrive. They're playing drums. Everyone's singing. There's this little church. I don't even know how to describe the size of it. It's about the size of the baptismal square in there. This tiny little space, and, and there's a ribbon across the door. It's all set up. And I'm like, cool, so who does the dedication? And he's like, you do. And I'm like, uh, how'd I do this? What'd I do? And so, like, he's just 
stand there, do this, cut this, pray this, touch this. Do. And he's giving me all these instructions. I'm just like, oh, whatever. And then he's like, oh, now, now we're going to baptize people because there's new believers in this community. So we go around the back, we baptize people. I'll save that story for when Rufus is here. Um, but, but anyway, so we do these baptisms and I get the blessing of baptizing all of these people. And then we get done and we walk into the church and they all line up in front of me and Rufus is like, okay, you've got to give them names. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, oh, well, they, they've died to their Hindu or Buddhist identity, so they need a new Christian identity. So give them a new name. We just pick something from the Bible that you feel like God wants to be that person's name. And I was like, just like for fun? He's like, no, they'll go by this name for the rest of their life. And I'm like, so you want me right now just to pick a name? Abraham and Sarah. Great. A <laughs> um, little bit crazy, but... But anyway, that story comes to mind because here they've seen something in this person and they're renaming him according to this identity. So there's a status here that this guy is getting given. He's being noticed and acknowledged as someone that is filled with the Spirit, that is moved by the Spirit, and that is doing the work of the Lord. He has a unique gift as an encourager, so he's coming alongside people and helping them uh, towards God's best for their life. Uh, and, and so this guy who's getting this honor sells the field, brings all of the money, and in this great gesture of generosity, lays it at the apostles' feet. No one asked him to do it. No one required it of him. It was just his response to the Spirit, seeing the needs round about, realizing that he had resource that he could share, and he gives it. And so Luke is, is, is beginning to show us what it's like in this community. This is an example of the radical sharing and radical generosity that existed. How many people in here have felt led by the Spirit to sell a second home that you have just to give the money to the church for people in need? Like, that's, that's a little radical for us, you know? Um, and I'm not asking you to do that. But if you're moved by the Spirit, he was moved by the Spirit. So Luke is setting up the story because what comes next? Ananias and Sapphira are also in the church. They're part of this community. They've seen Jesus. They've seen the Spirit poured out. They're in this fellowship as they meet and devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. But their heart is not motivated the same way Barnabas is. What does it say that they do? A man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, they also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself but brought the rest of it and put it at the apostles' feet. So that language, put it at the apostles' feet, is how Luke is letting us know he's doing a contrast here. One guy moved by the Spirit, gives his all, and lays it at the apostles' feet. Another guy says, I kind of like the recognition they're getting. I kind of like that they're being celebrated. He's been given a new name. I want that, so here's what we'll do. Let's sell ours, and let's keep some of it, and let's go and do the big show. We'll go, we'll lay it down at the apostles' feet, and we'll celebrate that we are just as awesome as Barnabas is. Both people have freedoms here. The freedom to use the money as they wish. The freedom to keep it all for themselves as they wish. Ananias and Sapphira exercise the wrong freedom to keep back, and then the freedom to lie to the community around about them. So you've got this moment, um, let, let, let me read what this, uh, this commentator says. I didn't put it up on the screen, but um, he says this, Ananias and Sapphira disregard the presence of God in the Christian community, the sacredness of that fellowship in God's eyes, and the relational aspect of their sin. It's just about them. 
They failed to discern that a deliberate act of deceit against the church was a sin against the Lord of the church. You know, again, in the journey that we've been through, or you've been through, that I'm starting to be through as a church, as you look and have had sin in the church exposed, as you've had your own brokenness, the things that you brought to the table that, that were holding the church back, it's very easy to view them individualistically. It was my sin, my issue, I did that, it doesn't really affect everyone else. It doesn't matter if I just stew on this issue and don't address it. These are relational sins, and when we're sinning against the people of God, we're actually sinning against the Spirit of God and sinning against Him. <laughs> and so, holding back things or deceiving the people round about in the process of living out life in the church is a heinous sin toward the Lord. Again, we live in an individualized world, so we see all of these things as just me and my issue. Um, but any of this stuff is, is an issue that we're holding. Uh, it, it's an issue that's affecting everybody and then against him. Uh, I'll put this line up here because it's poetic. <laughs> they wanted the kudos. You use this word here, right? Without the cost. They want the kudos without the cost. That's, th these are people who want the power they want the, the celebration, they want the recognition without being willing to put in the sacrifice that is required to get it. They are people that are deliberately choosing to present a different front to the people around about them than to what's truly going on inside. And, and there's loads of ways that we do this in the church. It may not be that we're, we're taking a portion of our money and holding it back, but there's so many ways that we do this. When we gather in a group and we withhold the truest parts of who we are, where we want the appearance of being in a fellowship group. So we're meeting in homes together and we're studying the Bible together, but you don't know a thing about what's going on inside of me. We want the appearance, but we don't share. We, we've got it when we say, I want to lead and, and I want to be a part of leading things forward, but I want it done my way. And I'm not willing to sacrifice the way I want it done in order for the community to get what they want. I want the, the appearance of status and cooperation, but I don't actually want to do it. And we do it when we're dealing with hidden sin in the church, when you've got a besetting pornography addiction, when you, you're dealing with alcohol issues, when you're a gossip, when you're bitter, and you hold on to those things rather than bringing them to the Lord. We're guilty of this, wanting the appearance of being a good Christian coming and gathering together without doing the work that it takes to allow God to break open our heart so that we give our all to Him. Um, this is the corruption that resulted, I mean, this is the beginning of the church. The church is just getting formulated. And this level of corruption is there from the beginning. And it seems like from our Western lens and from like our contemporary lens that the punishment on Ananias and Sapphira, it seems particularly harsh. Like they, they had their money, they kept some for themselves, they pretended they gave it all, smack down. Um, <laughs> There's some worse things going on in the church today that you would expect more of a smackdown from. Um, it, it's interesting as you read commentary on these passages, people try to make sense of this by saying what actually happened was when Peter confronts Ananias and Sapphira because they're in a shame on our culture, the shame of being exposed publicly and, and the fear that God might punish them caused them to have a heart attack in the moment and drop down dead possible. 
Luke's the doctor. <laughs> he doesn't tell us they had a heart attack, but he makes it very, very clear that God is involved, and this is a judgment that is being passed as a result of their sin. Sometimes I wonder if one of the problems in the West is we don't, we don't experience the judgment now that these people did, because if you were doing something wrong in the church and, and someone dropped down in front of us dead, I think we'd probably feel a little bit more fear about turning up to church. <laughs> would probably want to take a little more serious the issues that, that, that we're dealing with. And again, you go back to the contrast between persecution and corruption. What's the difference? Is, is inside you're dealing with corruption, it, there's no risk of our life. Persecution, when you're out there, you could be imprisoned or killed for your faith. Like when, when death is the result of living out our faith, it take, causes us to stop and take notice. But as long as we as the church are happy with comfortable Christianity, will always have a corrupt version of what God intends for us. So the call that we see in Acts is this willingness. Are you willing to give your all? Are you willing to expose your brokenness? Are you willing to take all of your riches and lay them at God's feet and say, spend this how you please? Are you willing to take lower position in order for things to move forward? Um, because as, as you see later in the story, you know, if, if, if we're doing a work if it's, if it's man's work, then it will fail. But if it's God's work, you don't want to be the one standing in the way of it. <laughs> so that's number two. Number three. Um, the third contrast is the contrast between the apostles and the religious leaders. This is where, this is where for me, I feel like, like it, it, it gets more difficult for us. Um, there are two responses that these people have as they're dealing with, with the apostles. Acts 5.26 says this, the captain went in with his officers to find the disciples and bring them. He, he went in with his officers and brought the apostles. They didn't use force because they feared the people would stone them. So you've got these religious leaders and government authorities that live in fear of man. And then you've got Peter's response to them. In verse 29, Peter says to the, and the other apostles, they reply, we must obey God rather than human beings. So these two people, or two groups of people, are operating from very, very different perspectives. Fear of man that says, I can't do this because I'm scared of the consequences, versus the radical transformation that the Spirit puts in us, that it doesn't matter if I lose this friendship, I need to tell this person of the love of Jesus. It doesn't matter if I lose my job, I have to take this opportunity to minister hope to this person sitting next to me. Um, it doesn't matter what the people round about think of me. I have to honor Christ and the people I love and the people I serve. So he's setting up this contrast. Who are we going to be? People that serve man, people that serve the Lord. In Acts 5, 27, the apostles were brought in and, and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name. And you know the consequence, imprisonment. Again, remember, like, this is not like, oh, we might get imprisoned. This is, Jesus was just crucified and the same thing might happen to us. So this is like brutal torture that they may experience. We gave you strict orders not to do this. You got off the hook once, but what did you do? You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. So they didn't just go back home and then like just kind of quietly go about their lives and occasionally preach the gospel. Like the religious leaders are acknowledging that the whole of Jerusalem has been filled with the teaching of Jesus. That's how vocal they are about their faith. Could you imagine people were saying that Hillsborough has been filled with our teaching? 
Could you imagine that was their indictment of us as a church? What is it that's going on? Every kid in the school is hearing about Jesus, and it stands against the things that we're trying to teach in the classroom. Every employer here that's a believer is telling all their their people about Jesus. Every shopkeeper and, and cashier is hearing about Jesus. You've filled Hillsborough with your teaching. How good are we doing at that? We're very good at filling our minds with the teaching, but how are we doing at getting that out into the world around about us? Um, I want to give a reminder from a couple of weeks ago again, because part of this whole process is I want to look at Acts and what are the patterns and what does it mean for us? And I want to show that this is not just me coming up with an idea, but this is rooted in scripture. So one of the things I said uh, two weeks ago was when you look at the message and the things that they were loud about, and then you look at the things that we're loud about in the West, they're very different. So when you look at Peter's message here, what is it that he says to them? He goes through the same pattern that he did in the first message. He talks about Jesus' resurrection. He talks about Jesus' crucifixion. And in this instance, it's very clear that you guys are the ones guilty of killing him. But God raised him to the right hand of the Father. They celebrate Jesus' exaltation and then said, and we are witnesses of these things. It wasn't a message about ethics. It wasn't a message about sexuality. It wasn't a message about how the world and the government should work together. It was the message, the core truth of the gospel. Jesus died, was raised. You're guilty of, or you're part and culpable of his death. He's exalted, and it's our job to go out there and bear witness to that truth and how we see it lived in our life. Um, So that's a fifth contrast that's hidden in there. Um, The last contrast is their response versus our response. Right at the end of the story, they've been been threatened. Don't do this. Don't teach in the name of Jesus. They're thrown in jail. An angel comes and lets them out. And what do they do? Well, the angel gives them this amazing commission. Go into the temple courts and preach about this new life. That's the commission that we have as a church. Go out into Hillsborough and declare the message of new life. And and so first thing in the morning, they've just been told, don't do this. First opportunity they get, they're up and they're out there and they're sharing the gospel. And then look with this ironic moment. It's like the the religious leaders are gathering together. They're deciding what they're going to do with these guys. And then they they send them out. They send some, go get them from the jail. We all know as the readers that they've been rescued from jail. They're not there anymore. Uh, Where are they? These guys that that are in jail for preaching the gospel are back out in the town preaching the gospel that we told them not to do. I love it. (laughs) Uh, And so they bring them back in. Gamaliel takes this role as an intercessor and kind of mediates for them. And then it says they beat them up and send them out. And I, I often, I'm like, again, these become just words that are part of the story. They beat them up. That's like us as a group getting you in the middle and all start kicking and punching and throwing things at you. This is not like a little smack. This is like brutal, the way that they treat them. And they send them out beaten and bloodied. And what does it say? They left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for his name. How different is that from us today? Oh my goodness, someone said something bad about me today. God, strike them down. (laughs) What about 
rejoicing that we're counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. That posture, their response in the middle of hardship is the opposite of what we do today. I want to give you an India story. This is the India story I was going to share. My first trip to India, I'd gone out with my mentor. We were at the, uh, a really amazing seminary in South India. Um, and the whole, the whole setup there is, is fantastic. But they would do chapels every day, prayer times every day. And I remember being at this chapel. And, and everything in India is a bit more like acts lived out in front of you. Um, and, and so I'm there and we're in this chapel. And one of the students gets up to lead worship. And as he starts, he's like, I, I, I want to read something to you. And he's like, I got an email this morning from some family. We're in South India. like some family in Northeast India. And some, some people were killed. Their houses were burned. And they lost their lives for the sake of the gospel. And I'm like, I've never been around someone who's actually lost someone close to them. I've, like, I've heard those stories, but I'm like standing here with someone that's like weeping as he's sharing that family have lost their lives for the gospel. And so what do you do when that happens? You call everyone to prayer, right? Let's pray for their comfort. Let's pray for protection of the church. No. So he says, I've got a song prepared that I want us to sing together. And he's like, I want us to reflect on their sacrifice and let's join together and pray that the Lord would count us worthy of losing our lives for the gospel. Let's pray that we would lose our lives for the gospel. And I was like, what? And then they started singing a song, and it's an oldie from over here. And these are the, wor- these are the words of the first verse. I've had many tears and sorrows. I've had questions for tomorrow. There's been times I didn't know right from wrong. But in every situation, God gave me blessed consolation that my trials come to only make me strong. So through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to depend upon his word. And I stood at the back of the room in tears (laughs) as the room full of students had their hands in the air and big smiles on their faces going, God, make me worthy to die for you. (laughs) The contrast between those people and the early church and what we look like in the West is so stark. So let's give up our freedoms. (laughs) Let's give up our materials. Let's give up our wealth. And, And let's say, God, have me all. Let me be persecuted for the name of Jesus. Let me declare who he is to people and have them shun me. Let me struggle with money for a little bit because I've been too generous. Because through it all, through it all, I've learned to depend on your word. Let me pray. God, we need you to do a massive reorienting in our hearts. Uh, God, we need you to do a huge shaking up of the church. Um, God, I am comfortable. (laughs) I am living an easy life. I don't sacrifice as much as, as I should. And then I think of Rufus, and I think of Anchor, and Babu, and Saji, and Siddharth, and 
uh, and, and Ruth and, and all of those people that are risking their life daily for the gospel. Um, and yet we sit here so comfortable. God, would you shake us up? God, would you help us to be a church that puts everything on the line? God, that we would fear you more than man. God, that we would love sacrificially, that we would give with radical generosity, that we would serve with devotion. And Lord, I think about people around the world that are persecuted. Yes, strengthen them to endure the suffering. Yes, give them boldness to continue to declare your word. Yes, provide the things that they need. But through it all, may you refine them and make them more like Jesus. And may your word go forth. So God, make us just a little bit more like the early church, we ask in Jesus' name.